We're in the book of Numbers tonight, Numbers chapter 17. One more chapter, and then I think we've hit the halfway mark. 36 chapters in the book of Numbers, I think. And I didn't realize that we were getting that close to finishing off the book of Acts in the morning. So we're in chapter 25, and... um, uh, 28 chapters in Acts. My intention for the morning um, service is to pick up, and I know the ladies are studying this, but my, my preaching won't do anything to the ladies. Um, my intention is to pick up the epistles of John, 1, 2, and 3, in, in the morning. And we'll be in, um, we'll be in uh, numbers at another oh, 25 weeks, maybe, something like that. I think so. Um, number 17. Verse 1, hear God's holy and perfect word. Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the sons of Israel and get from them a rod for each of his father's household, twelve rods. From all their leaders according to their father's households, you shall write each name on his rod. And write Aaron's name on the rod for Levi, and for there is one rod for the head of each of the father's households. You shall then deposit them in the tent of meeting in front of the testimony where I meet with you. It will come about that that rod of man whom I choose will sprout. Thus I will lessen from upon myself the grumblings of the sons of Israel who are grumbling against you. Moses therefore spoke to the sons of Israel, and all their leaders gave him a rod apiece, each leader according to their father's household, twelve rods, with the rod of Aaron among their rods. So Moses deposited the rod before the Lord in the tent of testimony. Now on the next day Moses went into the tent of testimony, behold, the rod of Aaron for the house of Levi had sprouted, put forth buds and blossom blossoms, and it bore ripe almonds. Moses then brought out all the rods from the presence of the Lord to all the sons of Israel. They looked, each man took his rod. But the Lord said to Moses, put back the rod of Aaron before the testimony to be kept as a sign against the rebels, that you may put an end to their grumblings against me so that they will not die. Thus Moses did just as the Lord commanded him, so he did. Then the sons of Israel spoke to Moses, saying, Behold, we, we perish, we are dying, we are all dying. Everyone who comes near, everyone who comes near to the tabernacle of the Lord must die. Are we to perish completely? Amen. Let's pray. Father, you are the best of fathers, the Father of mercies, the Father of lights, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. You are our Father by virtue of the adoption we enjoy in the Beloved. And we thank you, O God, that you have taken us away from being sons of darkness and sons of disobedience, and you have given us a new name. And we are children of light, even in Christ, who is the light. Help me, Almighty God, in the proclamation of your word. Give me the ability to rightly divide both in content and deliver, even in the tone, that you would be glorified and we ourselves would be built up. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. This particular chapter is a historical narrative book, unlike, say, an epistle, which was a different kind of genre altogether. This is a historical narrative. And so chapter 17, some of the commentators actually do this. If you get a few of the commentaries, they'll treat chapter 17 in conjunction with chapter 16. They're really taken as a couplet. They only make sense 
Chapter 17, you can take chapter 16 as a standalone. It would still make sense. Chapter 17 only makes sense, in my opinion, when you see it in connection with chapter 16. That's the logical connection. And if you know chapter 16, I'm going to have to bring some of that into this chapter with the whole business of Aaron's rod budding and choosing the family of Aaron as priest, priest uh, ministers. Um, I'm going to bring in some of chapter 16, which is Korah's rebellion, and the themes were the same. Uh, the themes were the same, that um, God was choosing only one particular clan, the clan of Levi, and only one family, subfamilies. Levi had a number of different families in Levi. Only one subfamily um, within Levi, namely the family of Aaron, to be the priestly class. Uh, to be the priests within the ceremonial law. And the ceremonial law in the Old Testament is typological or shadowy of the gospel. Uh, in our own confession, I want to say it's chapter 7, uh, maybe paragraph 5 and 6. The gospel in the Old Testament, type and shadow. The gospel in the New, the substance has come. These fellows, Aaron and the sons, typify Jesus in their shadowy at best. You know, two of Aaron's sons were... Um, were killed by the Lord because they offered strange fire. They were priests. They, meant, they were meant to typify Christ. But obviously they come short of the antitype uh, being um, Jesus Christ. So chapter 16, we had Korah's rebellion. Korah is a Levite, and he is of, of the family of, um, of Kohath. And these fellows had certain particular functions within the tabernacle, not priestly functions. So they're not of Aaron. And uh, Korah was the um, chief conspirator with Dathan, Abiram, and then there was another lesser-known fellow named On, O-N. And Dathan, Abiram, and O-N were Reubenites, and Kohath was a uh, Levite. Uh, excuse me, Korah was a Levite. And then they, uh, the, these four conspirators, they co-opted or instigated um, a larger portion, I think they're Levites, 250 men of renown, leaders, and they each had a censor, so it seems as if they're non-ironical Levites, to also join in the rebellion against Aaron and Moses, which the Lord God says in chapter 16, and he says again in chapter 17, God takes rebellion against his stated uh, authority or rule in the church in this case uh, as um, a rebellion against him. And so we could apply it. There are three spheres in which God has placed um, order, family, church, state. God has created human beings as, as a social creature, and he's given us societies, those three societies in which to live. And there's order, and it's God-ordained order. And when man strikes at God, God's ordained order, God takes it to be a strike at himself. So it's an expression of anarchy, idolatry, a breach of the fifth commandment. So it's a breach of the second commandment, fifth commandment, and tenth commandment. Tenth commandment, because people are coveting something that doesn't God has not given to them. They're grieving at the good of their neighbor. They're idolatrous because they're grasping a higher position, and they're seeking to overthrow God's order, fifth commandment. So that was Kor's rebellion, discontentment, envy, and anarchy. And um, they were against... Moses as the prophet, they were against Aaron as the priest, and it was especially the priesthood that these men craved, and that's what chapter 17 is all about. In chapter 16, God is telling the rebels, you're not getting the priesthood. It only belongs to Aaron, 
in chapter 17 comes along, and it's a repetition of that same truth. It's only going to be Aaron that will be my appointed, uh, commissioned, and approved priest in this ceremonial system. And I, I just want to say a, some, something about discontent. When we are discontent, and particularly when we crave for, uh, how would I say, a higher status or station, as these men. These men were not content to be merely Levites. They wanted to be of the family of Aaron. They wanted to be priests. This is true. This is just myself. You could differ with me, and perhaps you're right. Oftentimes when people crave, they, when, when they are envying the position of another, they're envying in my opinion, um, in ignorance. They think they want the higher position. I don't know whether the saying is, what, what is it, uh, heavy is the head that wears the crown or something? Was that, was that Winston Churchill? One of them. So, so men crave, or women for that matter, crave a higher standing. I want that. I want to be the priest. They want what something they, they, they perceive is good, is a, is a good that they don't have. What they oftentimes are ignorant of because they don't have the calling, they're, they're ignorant of the responsibilities. They're ignorant of the dangers. I know this is a truism, and I don't mean to be polemical tonight. When women crave to be ministers and women crave to be preachers, in my opinion, again, they're craving something that they, they don't understand. You, you think you want that because, oh, you're the top guy and, oh, you move your lips and you're in the front. You think you want that, but you don't want the responsibility that comes with it. Remember, two of the priest's sons offered strange fire and with great, great rank comes great responsibility. And what happened to them? God killed them. So you, you don't want the gravity. You don't want the, you don't want the, the responsibility. You don't want the, the danger you just think that you want the rank, the privilege. But you can't have the rank and the privilege without the other. So it's, this is meant as a check to us. We all do this. Everyone does this. Um, the grass is always greener. And the, I, there was a, a, a post I put in our church post a number of years ago. It was, it was funny. It was a cow that was in, a, in the pasture and the cow stuck its neck out of the pasture, and it was against the. It was actually against the the barbed wire to eat the grass that was outside of the barbed wire, and inside of the grass was plenty. Inside of the barbed wire was plenty of grass. <laughs> the grass is always greener, and so they were guilty of wanting something higher that they really were ignorant of. Remember the two guys that got their mom in the New Testament. Was it James and John? James and John, the son, they were sons of thunder. They were such sons of thunder, they had to get their mom. <laughs> Remember that? They got their mom to go to Jesus and say, will you give Sonny number one and Sonny number two a throne on your left and your right? And, and Jesus knows what mama is doing. Mama has been put up to this by the two boys. So he turns to James and John and says what to them? Remember what he says? It's this. Can you drink the cup that I'm about to drink? And what are they saying? Quicky, quick. Oh, yeah, yeah, I, I can do it. <laughs> he said, you're going to drink it. But you can't do what you think you can do. So Korah, the other non-Alonical Levites that thought they could, they can't. And whether or not a person could physically carry out the function, let's just talk about a woman preacher. Do I think there are women who know a ton of Bible? Sure I do. 
Can they be um, women preachers? No, they cannot. Why? God says no. You have to be the husband of one wife. You can't be a, ma a female as a, a minister. He just says no. So whether or not you could actually physically move your lips and carry out the... Could these non-ironical priests physically have done what an ironical priest could do? Yeah, probably they could. But they couldn't because God said no. And what do we do when God says no? But we could say, come up with some reasons that, well, what about this and what about that? But God says no. Here's the limit. What, what's the right response? We say in the Reformed Church, sovereignty of God, the sovereignty of God. Now we love the sovereignty of God. What about in God's sovereignty when he says no? That's this. He says to the non-ironical family, no, you're not going to be a minister. There's no discussion about it. And then he says to the family of Aaron, and you will be priests. And there's no discussion about that. There was an a, a Indian um, comedian, and someone was talking to him um, he was speaking to another Indians, and the Indian was a doctor. And he said, when did, you choose, when did you decide to be a doctor? He said, I never decided to be a doctor. It was decided for me a long time ago. His grandfather was a doctor. His father was a doctor. He was going to have to be a doctor. It's like that. God says, no, if you're not of Aaron, you're not going to be a priest. And then he says to the tribe of Aaron, you, you are going to be a priest. It's decided. That's sovereignty, sovereignty. So mostly we, we talk about in the Reform camp sovereignty when it touches on soteriology, salvation, which is true. This is sovereignty in everything. God, and he's going to say, I can give life and I can take it away. That's sovereignty. And we see that in the life of um, uh, Korah and rebellion and likewise in chapter 17. And um, in chapter 16, he, God had Moses a minister and God directly administered what I would say distinguishing tests and miracles to reveal the ones that God chose as priests. This is a fight over the priesthood. And you remember in chapter 16, Matthew Henry will say those were miracles of wrath. But by the time we get to Matthew, chapter 17, Matthew Henry says chapter 17 is going to be st still distinguishing miracles of God's sovereign selection of only Aaron, but it won't, will no longer be miracles of wrath, it will be miracles of grace. And what do I mean by that? You remember where, how God miraculously revealed only Aaron in chapter 16. The ground opened up and swallowed up the uh, three instigators in their families. That's a miracle. Only Aaron Non-ironical people are not going to be priests. Then the 250 non-ironical Levites that had their censors, God didn't choose them. What miracle did God clearly show they're not chosen? Fire from heaven came and killed all 250. And then when the people, just like they did here, at the very end of the chapter, God says, only Aaron, what do the people do? They pitch a fit. At the end of chapter 16, he says, only Aaron, and what do the people do? They pitched a fit. And at the end of chapter 16, the people of God don't like the sovereignty of God. And what does God do to them? He takes 14,700 of them and he kills them. That's sovereignty. That's the lordship of the Lord. And the right response to that is to do what? Is to fear the Lord. It is to fear the Lord. God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. 
Fearing God is considered passe in the church. You want to you, you talk about fear of the Lord, you're going to keep your church manageably small. God's not to be trifled with. And so we went from the miracle of wrath, this is a miracle of grace, I agree, so he can, uh, he can take away life, but he can also bring life, which is what we see bringing life out of a dead uh, staff. Now, both chapter 16 and chapter 17 contain miracles. What we're looking at in chapter 17 is another miracle. Adam, uh, excuse me, Aaron's staff is a lifeless, sapless piece of wood, and it's going gonna, it's gonna to bear fruit. That's a miracle. Now, if someone says, I don't believe in miracles, you're going to have a tough time with the Bible. Because the Bible opens up, Genesis 1-1, in the beginning, what? God. And then what happens? Miracle after miracle after miracle. God creates everything out of nothing, ex nihilo, by the word of his power, in the space of how many days? Six days, and all very good. That's a miracle. Virgins giving birth to Jesus Christ, that's a miracle. Ground opening up, swallowing up Korah and the conspirators, miracle. A lifeless stick bearing blossoms and even mature almonds, miracle. God is showing to his people, I am God and nothing is impossible for me. And he does, he does miracles. Now, sometimes it's helpful for us to define our terms. Sometimes we, we use a word like I love you. And it just, I love pizza. It's kind of, we use it in a frivolous sense. And we can use the word miracle in a frivolous sense. You go to Walmart, I found a parking space close to the door. It's a miracle. But a miracle properly understood, and I'm saying this because even in the church, I don't know of anybody in this church, I did it. I've been to miracle services. I went from Catholicism, and when I was born again, I didn't come straight into the Reformed Church. I used to hang out with Pentecostals all the time. I, I wanted to be a Pentecostal. So I went to miracle services all the time and watched people perform miracles. Not like this, beloved. A, a, a miracle is not like, um, a miracle is miracle. Your work, uh, uh, properly speaking, a miracle is when God does not use any ordinary means. When God says, let there be light with no ordinary means, that's a miracle. Another uh, species of miracle is when God uses a means, an ordinary means, but he uses them against their own properties or above their own properties. For example, um, when Jesus Christ walks on water, he's, he's walking on ordinary water, but he's working against the property of water. When, he, when, when God created Adam, he created him from dirt. He takes dirt and turns it into a man. That's God using a means, but against the property of those means. And when, how did God create Eve? He took a rib out of a man. He used the means, but against the ordinary property of that means to effect a miracle. So miracles are either without any means at all, out of nothing, or he uses a means in an extraordinary fashion. And so it's helpful when people start saying miracles to define really what a miracle is. This is a miracle. This is a miracle. And, and, and part of the miracle is meant to show the people of God, I can give life and I can take life away. The psalmist uh, will speak about this in the psalms. But as I mentioned, this particular chapter, along with chapter 16, mentions 
Um, it's a repetition of God's sovereign choice of the family of Aaron to be the uh, Aaronical um, priests. What's amazing to me is um, that the people of God need an additional chapter. You would think, would you not, if you lived through chapter 16, let's just say you were there, wouldn't you think by the time you got to chapter 16, you would say to God, I completely understand only Aaron, only the sons of Aaron are going to be priests. No one will even cause, I think, of usurping this position any longer by the time you finish chapter 16. But clearly they don't. Clearly they don't. It takes a whole other chapter, and they don't even like God's answer on that. Beloved, sometimes people say, well, if I could see a miracle, I would tr truly believe. No, 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 no. Seeing a miracle won't make you believe. God the Holy Spirit giving you the ability to believe, that'll make you believe. They see a miracle. You remember in John chapter, is it 11, when Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead? Everyone sees Jesus say to a man who's dead four days, come forth Lazarus, they all see. Half of the people say, we, they go back to the Pharisees and say, he raised Lazarus from the dead, and they concluded, we have to kill this guy. They saw the miracle. So seeing is not the same as, 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 as saving faith. And, but God is clearly showing his sovereignty um, in these things. Now, you have 12 men, depending on how you count. This is not a Bible study. You'll get my notes if you're on the church email list. You'll get my notes. Some commentators say, well, there are 12 leaders for the 12 tribes of Israel, which is true. And then they're each going to take a rod for their uh, tribe, and they're going to write their name on it. And Aaron's going to write his name for the tribe of Levi. However, and I, I didn't know which I believed, so I'm just going to throw this out there. Joseph has two sons. And so sometimes when the 12 tribes are listed, the, 12, the tribe of Levi will be called out. And then you have the two, two sons, half-sons half of um, Joseph, Ephraim and Manasseh, to make your 12. So I wasn't quite sure whether we had... Ephraim and Manasseh standing for Joseph, and then we had 13, uh, uh, um, 13 uh, 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 rods in all. I tend to think it's, it's probably the 12. Joseph is still as the tribal head, and we have uh, 12 tribal heads, and then we have um, each tribal leader writing his name on the, um, on the staff. And these staffs are not... Um, there, are, there are men that are... That are um, they're more naturalistic in their thinking. They don't believe in miracles. So these particular rods, I used to remember the, Greek, the Hebrew word, it's more like a staff. It's more like a, a, shepherd, a shepherd's stack. It's not, it's not a walking um, stick, uh, like a walking cane. It's more like a four or five foot uh, stout, or, uh, the, the Lord is my, my shepherd and having a staff, something like that. But the point with these particular rods is that they're dead and lifeless. There's no sap. So they didn't cut a branch with olives on it, almonds on them already. But the point is that they, are, they have no life-giving sap. And therefore, when God causes it to sprout and to grow, it will be a miracle. God has them write on each of the staff the tribal name. When God reveals himself in a couple of ways. In, in the Reform camp, we usually say that God reveals himself both in the book of nature, which is a, a natural revelation, in the book of Scripture, which is redemptive revelation. One shows forth God as a creator to man as creatures, and the other shows God off as savior, savior to men who are sinners in need of a Savior. 
But even in that, we have non-propositional revelation, miracles, ground, sprouting, and so on. And then we have propositional revelation. And with the writing of the name, we have propositional revelation written or oral. And um, this is more clear revelation. God is wanting, both by the non-propositional revelation, the, the blossoms, the fruit, and the propositional, the writing, it is Aaron. It's, it's not the other fellows. Uh, our, chapter, our confession, chapter 1, paragraph 1, talks about the benefits of propositional revelation. It's a more clear expression of God's will. It's less easy, easy to be corrupted and so on. It's for our betterment that we would understand it. When This is why Christ is called the Word. This, this is why I'm against mysticism and so on. This is why I think classic Protestantism, um, the sacraments serve the Word and they can only be distributed according to the Word. Otherwise, if you administered the sacraments with the, without the Word, it would descend to mysticism. It's not as clear. What I mean by this is if you practice the Lord's Supper or baptism and you said nothing, there were no uh, words of administration, you wouldn't have a hot clue unless you were raised in the church. You wouldn't have any idea. It's propositional revelation that helps us understand the mind of God clearer. And so God combines both, propositional and non-propositional. God says in this expression of his sovereignty, choosing only Aaron and not choosing the other fellows, he says it's for a number of different purposes. One, it's to promote peace among the people of God and that he would stop any future rebellions in the church. I'm using the church in the broad sense, meaning Israel. It's a sad thing. When I came out of Catholicism and became born again, I thought all Protestants loved Christ and they loved other people that loved Christ. I just thought it was Catholics that had problems. I wasn't a Protestant more than an hour and a half. We found that's not true. Um, it, It is a sad thing when you have little rebellions among a people that profess to love God. And what God does by, by expressing his sovereignty, it's meant to stop the griping and the complaining. He says it. This is meant to stop the griping and the complaining against you, Moses, because in part it's going to vindicate the religious leadership of Moses. They're wanting to throw down Moses. They're wanting to throw down Aaron. And when God clearly says, no, Moses is my man and Aaron is my man, it's meant to promote peace, to take away that desire to, to have a position that doesn't belong to us. And so um, it, it is for that purpose. And then God says, not only is this meant to pr- promote peace and to take away any desire for sedition among my people, but also that they would not grumble against me. And this is an interesting thing. When God says no to those people that are non-ironical, He actually says, this is meant to make you more peaceable and happy with me. That is an interesting thing to me. Not many people like to hear the word no, do they? Even little kids. You take a little kid, little kids, you think little kids can't, they don't have a high vocabulary. I think kids know way more words. Before they can speak, they know a lot of words. The first word after mama they learn is probably no. (laughs) And they know exactly what no means, that they're not getting their way. And they don't like it at all. Even the cutest, most kids are cute until they hit, I don't know, I don't know. If they're your kids, they're cute forever. But you know what I mean. But God says actually this, when I tell you no, 
It is meant to promote peace that you would not seek a position that doesn't belong to you. And I'm just point of personal privilege. So I've been married many, many years, 37 years. And I remember early on in my, my, my marriage, and I was not a Christian at the time, but my, ba- my dad was raised a traditionalist Catholic. And he had a view of marriage which most Protestants don't have. Um, but it was his view, and I knew it was his view. It was a permanence view, but I don't mean a Protestant kind of permanence. I mean, you have to die. <laughs> it was the old-fashioned permanence. It didn't matter. Cheating, desertion, nothing mattered. It was only death. So once you entered into the marriage, and I'm not saying it's, this is not the view of this particular church, but it was my dad's view. And I remember saying to my dad, oh, I'm having a hard time in my marriage. And he said, yeah, marriages are hard, and you know, pray, talk through it and fight through it. And, um, and she's yours forever until you die. She's yours. And I remember just settling down with all of that. Because you don't have to worry about, well, I don't have to worry about, well, if she does this, and it doesn't matter what she does. She's mine. In, in a weird way, the no was very freeing. It was very freeing. I didn't have to worry about anything. I had to just get back and love my wife. Because the answer was no, you're not... She's yours. So it's, it's the possibility of having a thing which you're not supposed to have a thing which drives you half mad. And God says, well, I'm going to take that away from you. you. You can't have it. It's a no. So then just be content with your situation. So in my case, it was be content with your wife. I'm super content with my wife. But there was a time when you're young and silly and times are hard. Hearing no was very, very freeing. And for these non-ironical pe- people thinking, I can, I can grasp, I can complain, I can fight, I can rebel. It's exhausting. And God says, no, this is going to actually promote peace. No, you, you can't have it. I gave it to another person. Does that make sense? In a strange way, it's very comforting to have, have parameters. Little children, don't we think like if a kid could get everything they want, they would be happy? No, they'd be a wreck. You'd be a wreck. God says, when I set the parameters, it'll be better for you. It'll be better for you. I talk all the time about marriage and so on, and it's between a man and a woman. When God sets the parameter, it's to be the end of the discussion. And it's very comforting and very freeing. It's meant to promote joy, if that makes any sense. So, so, so that's what's going on. The sovereignty of God sometimes is hard to take, but when we receive it rightly by faith, it is very comforting and very freeing. No need to fight. He tells the guys after he performs the miracle, obviously the miracle happens. You have the, the rod blossoms. It even produces full mature almonds. He says, I want you to put it in the tent and actually in front of the, the uh, testimony, which is the Ark of the Covenant. So we understand where these things, where this evidence rod, Aaron's staff, showing that Aaron is the chosen priest and his, and his sons, is placed with inside the Holy of Holies. This is why it's a good idea for us to know Old Testament and, and uh, New Testament. This is what, one of the things I love about the Reformed faith. Having spent time in non-Reformed churches, this is an, an area of, of the faith I think the Reformed church does a, a pretty good job, job at. That is to say, looking and finding Christ in the Old Testament. Shadow, substance. So the place that this, this rod uh, it, it, it finds its use in the New Testament, I want to say it's Hebrews chapter 9. It, Hebrews chapter 5 and Hebrews, Hebrews chapter 10 is the, the priesthood of Melchizedek. 
Christ enters into the true holy of holies. Christ is the true chosen priest, not of Aaron, but of Melchizedek. That's how we look at this and think, well, God is is sovereign in creation, and God is sovereign in redemption. He chooses the priest. He chooses the means. He's the efficacy of, he's the one that gives repentance. He's the one that gives faith. Everything is of God. Everything is God's sovereign administration here. So it's placed in the Holy of Holies, and it's placed in the place where God places his name. And you remember the the Ark of the Covenant, which is the testimony. The Ark is essentially a wooden box. And the wooden box is gilded with gold, but it's a wooden box. Inside the wooden box is what, fundamentally? It's the scroll of the law. Over the wooden box is what? And this is highly significant. You have the law inside of the box. What's over the box? The mercy seat. And what gets sprinkled on the mercy seat one time a year in one place by one man, the high priest, the blood. And what what does it signify? We are lawbreakers. I said it this morning. I feel really bad. I was super passionate this morning. Jesus is in the saving sinners, lawbreakers. We are lawbreakers. And it's the blood. His blood. Only his blood. Only one day. Only Calvary. He's the priest. That's how we're reconciled. No other choice. No other way. Only Christ. That's what this is a teaching. And so it's placed there that we would um, we would adhere to it. We would recognize it. I want you to see something about what Moses does, which is interesting, because before the rod bud, buds, God tells Moses, take the 12 rods and place them before me, and then come back in the morning, and essentially I reveal the man of my choice. Notice what Moses does and what, what Moses doesn't do. Moses has been accused by the rabble and before of being a, a religious tyrant. That's the accusation. Moses, you and Aaron are tyrants, and all of these people are holy, and we want to rule in addition. But the Bible doesn't call Moses a tyrant. What does the Bible say about Moses? He's the most meek man on the planet. And I mentioned last time, one of the ways that Moses reveals that he's not a tyrant is he doesn't respond like a tyrant. He falls on his face and cries before God, and he intercedes for the people. That's not a tyrant. And here's another expression where Moses reveals his meekness in that he's not a religious usurper or a religious tyrant. God says, Moses, I will show you the man of my choice repeatedly. Put these rods before my my testimony. And what does he do? He does it. He does it. He doesn't say what he's accused of. I am the leader around here. I will make the choice. Aaron is my big brother. It will come from Aaron. That's what a tyrant would do. Beloved, we learn just very practically, in order to be a good gospel teacher, a teacher or instructor of others religiously, you have to be a good student of the word. If you want people to lead and to follow your lead religiously, you have to be submissive to the Lord. This is a Matthew chapter 22. Don't call people rabbi. You, you serve the Lord and serve other people by serving them. 
And so Aaron, excuse me, Moses lays it before the Lord and he waits for the Lord to answer. Um, I think it was um, St. Augustine that said this. St. Augustine said, without God, and he was in reference to people calling him a religious guide. He said this, without God, what am I but a guide to my own destruction? People were saying, Augustine, you're such a wonderful guide. You're such a wonderful religious guide. And he said, without God, what am I but a guide to my own destruction? Without the word of God, submitting to the word of God, no man can properly lead anyone. For us moms and dads, are we faulty and frail? Yes. How do we want to lead our children with the word of God? What's the best way we can lead our children with the word of God? Be led by the word of God. That's the best way. Are we going to stumble and bumble? Of course. And we're going to do it until we go to heaven. But the, to be the best teacher is to be the best uh, learner. And so when then we have the divine results, and then we have the miracle answer. Uh, God brings life out of death, which is what the, the, the answer is. And it sprouts with almonds. I would just tell you this. Um, there, are t- there are a couple of different writers. There's this fellow, his last name is Cole, C-O-L-E, C-O-L-E. A couple of really insightful commentators on the book of um, Numbers. And they speculate. It's not, they're, not, they're not inordinately speculative. They speculate why God used, used the symbolism of uh, almonds in reference to the ironical family of Aaron. Um, the word for a lampstand in Hebrew, you most, most of you all probably know that. What's lampstand in Hebrew? It's menorah. And the, uh, some of the art, artistry on the menorah, which was used by the sons of Aaron in the tabernacle, it was, um, it was this, Exodus 25. You have, uh, and men- menorah has uh, six uh, uh, candle uh, uh, sticks. The three cups shall be shaped like almond blossoms in one branch, a bulb and a flower. Three cups shall be sh- shaped like almond blossoms on the other branch, a bulb and a flower. So this writer is speculating that the, um, the, um, the symbol for the ironical family was almonds. And the other uh, interesting comment was this, that the noun form and the verb form comes from the same root. Uh, almond, the noun is obviously a noun. And then to watch, um, to watch over God's word, to see it come to pass, it's the same root word um, in uh, the verb form it, to, um, it's, um, I'll butcher it, shakak, shakat, something like that. Here's how it's used in um, one sentence. One for almond, one for watch, same word. Jeremiah 111, the word of the Lord came to me saying, what do you see, Jeremiah? I said, I see a rod of almond tree. That's the, uh, uh, the noun form. Then the Lord said to me, you have seen well, for I am watching over my word to perform it. That watching over is the almond for, uh, word in the verb form. And so the notion is there's a play on word. Aaron, my priests, will be those appointed men who have been appointed by me to watch over my word uh, that it would come to pass, that I would perform it. Something like that. And then we have the recording of the divine test. And then we have the... Um, the response to the divine test. And I'm going to say this, and I don't want to end on a, on a sour note, but it is interesting to me. This is chapter 17, 12. God responds. This is meant to stop the grumbling of the people of God against Moses and Aaron. 
And he says in verse 10 that this may put an end to their grumblings against me so that they will not die. God is saying that he's, this is an expression of grace. Now, when you see hard providences in the word of God, it doesn't mean that God is a hard and austere God. That's a bad thing to conclude. That's the person that doesn't produce fruits. The word uh, for austere in Greek is skleros. It means skinflint. So it's always a bad idea to conclude that God is austere. He's not. But when God says hard things, he means it um, out of love uh, for his children. And he says, I'm doing these things so that you wouldn't grumble against me so that you would not die. It's an expression of grace. And the conclusion of the people in verse 12 is this. They grumble against God. It's just... I've mentioned a number of times I was raised in the Catholic Church. The Catholic Church believes in Jesus. They believe in justification by faith, but not faith alone. It's faith plus. I will never believe a faith plus anything justification. I will never believe it's Jesus' 90% and my faithfulness, my 10%. I will never believe that. I know myself and I read the Bible. Just in this book, just in this book, I always ask this when there are people, even in Protestant churches, I won't, you know the church that I'm referencing. Faithfulness, oh, your faithfulness, oh, your faithfulness, you're so faithful. <laughs> if you go to church twice, that's three merits. And if you, you stay, I don't know, read the Bible in Eucharistics, that's four pluses. I always think the other way. So if I get three pluses for going to six church services a week, plus, plus, to earn my way into heaven. How many demerits do I get for sin? See what I mean? If I get a merit for going to church, how many demerits do I get for every time I don't love my neighbor? You cannot read the book of Numbers. Were the people of God covenantly, to use their phrase, covenantly faithful? Were they? No. They're wretches from beginning to end. Every five seconds, God is telling Moses, get away from these people because I'm going to kill them all and I'll start over with you. And what does Moses do every time? He intercedes like Christ. Father, don't. For the glory of your name, for the good of your son, don't. We sing that song. Is it Wesley? Don't let that ransom sinner, what? Die. Is all grace. We grumble and mumble and sin. We shouldn't. It's never an excuse to sin. If it was not pure, 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 sovereign grace in Christ, we would be undone. We would be undone. But we're not undone because it is all grace in Christ. Amen.